0: This
1: is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Vanessa Hope Schneider. Vanessa is the head of marketing at Clara Labs. And Vanessa has a slightly different background. She studied avant-garde poetry at Columbia University but eventually transitioned to tech marketing, and she has held roles with companies like Airbnb and Eventbrite. On this episode, Vanessa talks about what it takes to truly understand your audience, effective communication, and what to look for when hiring a marketing team. Enjoy.
2: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes.
0: Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. I'm joined by my co-host, Lauren, what's going on?
3: Hey, not too much. It is a lovely rainy day in the Bay Area today.
0: So rainy. But uh, we have a special guest in studio. Vanessa, how's it going?
4: It's going well. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. We have a fun episode for everybody today. We're going to be talking about Vanessa's background, about how marketing, the marketing organization is a doorway, how unconventional backgrounds make marketing teams better, do a little creative writing talk, a little publishing talk, and we'll see where this takes us. So let's get into it. Share a little bit about your background and how you became head of marketing at Claire Labs.
4: Sure. So my first career was actually in book publishing. So I spent many years working at all the publishing houses in New York. And my role there was to work on behalf of the publishing houses to help bring visibility to their titles and to their authors. So I would work with authors to get their books reviewed, to prep them for interviews, for fun things like NPR and the Colbert Report back when that existed, um, and also to make sure those books got reviewed. So it was really an opportunity to help writers connect with readers. And that was tremendously fun.
0: That's super fun. Yeah,
4: it was really special as a bookworm, as someone who is a writer herself, just to be in the mix with all of these authors who I admired was really exciting. As everyone sort of knows, thanks to Devil Wears Prada, etc. publishing is a tough industry yeah. to work in. Um, but when you're young and you have a tremendous amount of energy, you're able to be paid in proximity. And being proximate to that world was exhilarating. And I always felt like I would hang out with my friends from college and they all had jobs where they worked in offices and consulting firms and law firms and I was always the one that had the most interesting stories. So I love the paid
0: in proximity. That's good. We need to uh we need to write an article about that or something. Yeah. I feel like that's something that we don't especially in marketing too. Like some of these marketing roles where it's like just getting paid to learn like no when you're young yet yeah, like you're always getting paid to learn even though you think you're the expert right but in reality being near cool stories and stuff is is super fun yeah,
3: and it's cool stories and cool experiences and who are the people that you're you're meeting what are the different experiences that you have and i'm a, a firm believer of all of the random seemingly random experiences that you have over time all of a sudden 10 15 20 years later that paid in proximity experience all of a sudden pays dividends because something super interesting that you you learned from that early on.
4: Absolutely. And I think this is one of the places where I appreciate the, valley, the Valley's interest in young people. And there's this meritocracy where if you're game, if you're smart, if you can figure it out, there's room for you at the table. But it also makes me think about how important it is to have some people around the table who have seen some things,
3: completely, whatever
4: they are, because drawing upon those experiences and, and those inspirations and those influences really does make a difference. It makes the conversation richer. So you need a bit of both.
3: Totally. And it's the my favorite expression that I've heard around that is um, intelligence versus wisdom. Mm-hmm. You need raw intelligence. And again, why I love the Bay Area is you get really, really smart people, high ceiling that are ready to go, but then having that bit of wisdom of, I love where your head is at, let me just coach and guide you because I have these, this sort of depth of experience and you put those two things together and that's where you really start to get scale. I actually think that's a really unintentionally interesting segue into what are your thoughts on teams? How do you build great teams? Yeah,
4: so I always look for a team that is going to adopt a mentality that I actually learned in books and, and that's the mentality of being a spy. So if you think about your life as a book publicist, you're sitting there in an office surrounded by books on your bookshelves and you have several titles that you're working at the same time. So maybe you have a graphic novel and maybe you have a biography about Elvis and maybe you have a very literary collection of poetry and you need to dip into each of those worlds, which is very distinct, which has its own patois, which has its own customs and norms, and find your way in to help those authors shine with the people who are most likely to come to their book. This is the same for any marketing team. You need to be able to amass a group of marketers who are going to be excited about coming to authentically know the distinct communities that your company needs to reach. And so when you look for, when I look for marketers, I look for people who have that appetite, the humility that is mm-hmm. required to enter into those communities and be like, wow, show me your ways. I want to learn. And then they know how to translate that understanding into marketing output that resonates and that they can sort of see through from conceptual into reaching those audiences in a way that makes sense to them
3: and it sounds like it's this high degree of customer empathy of I don't presume I know all the answers but I really care about the people we're selling to and how do I how do I understand them how do I learn from them and you just Take that information and really bring it in and use that for your marketing.
4: Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that no matter how big your team is, no matter how big your marketing budget is, no matter how big your research budget is, mm-hmm. there are ways to do this. There are ways to develop that empathy and understanding. So, you know, one of the things that I really loved about my time working at Airbnb was that we had an incredibly expert research organization we had people who were like behavioral economists and phds and all kinds of like weird cultural phenomenon and they knew exactly how to get the right people in the room put them in the right situation and learn from their responses and their behaviors and their instincts and that for me as a marketer was a secret weapon. It was so valuable. So I had the opportunity to sit in on focus groups behind the one-way glass. And I had the opportunity to watch users playing with prototypes as they tried to figure out what button on a new app was going to create what action. But now over at Clara Labs, where it's a much smaller team, we have no research co- capabilities, there's still plenty of opportunities to learn. So at Clara Labs right now, we're selling to recruiting teams. And it's a great opportunity for everyone at the company to come to know this customer base. And 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 so we can do things like follow the influencers on Twitter and understand what they're talking about and what matters to them. Show up at conferences where people in the recruiting world convene and talk to people. I also have our sales guy record all of his prospecting conversations so that I can learn from what he's getting back from the field. That's a really powerful way. And it's free. It's easy. He's having those conversations already. All he has to do is upload a file to G-Drive. And I have this incredibly rich well to to mine from to understand, okay, what actually matters to this prospect and how can I dial in my positioning so that it speaks right to their concerns?
0: So that's a really interesting way of doing things. We, we've kind of talked about that in the in the past about sales marketing alignment and how to like leverage those things. You have a smaller team now, you know, on in the startup world with, with Clara. So you don't have, you know, a gigantic team of marketers that's doing this sort of stuff. So each minute is really precious. But I think it's if you're going into that mindset as a marketer saying like, this is our hypothesis is what we believe that the people are selling to the for you, it's recruiters. This is you know, the world that they want to see, right? This is the faster horse that they want or whatever it is. This is our hypothesis. And then going, actually listening to those conversations where they're talking to a sales rep, you could learn a lot. Do you feel like sometimes when you're listening to those conversations, you're like, this is a waste of my time. When do you like, when do you draw the line at like, okay, I've listened to 50 unaffiliated calls. You know, how do you kind of like split test that, those experiences to figure out how to value your time the best way?
4: And I think that question could be applied to pretty much any thing I do (laughs) in a small startup. I think for listening to sales calls, connecting with the community, it's always going to be a valuable thing, even if it's simply affirming expectations or hypotheses that you already possess. But at a certain point, you just have to take action. So I think what I look out for is sort of thinking about it as concentric circles or like a bullseye. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that I know that that center circle deeply, and then what's extra, what is extra bonus time if I have it, is understanding the nuances around the edges going further and further outside of that bullseye. So once I'm sort of sufficiently confident that I understand the center target, then I'm like, okay, I have enough to go on and make something that's going to make a kind of sense. But there's, of course, richness and nuance beyond that, that hopefully you just sort of amass over time. Part of it is also just putting stuff in the field and seeing what comes back. And one of the blissful things about being at a startup is that you can try stuff. And it can feel, in many respects, high stakes and low stakes at the same time. Uh, High stakes in that, oh my god, it's your only marketing campaign because you're a team of one. But low stakes in the sense that you didn't spend a ton of money on it. You didn't take a ton of time to do it because you haven't got the time. And if you learn a bunch of things that's already accretive to the business, it's still valuable.
0: Do you think that, I mean, you know, I would even say it's not just, you know, startup mindset there that like larger companies should have the same exact mindset. I mean, Lauren, with some of the, uh, I don't want to say baggage, but some of (laughs) the... um, red tape or some of the things when you've wanted to be creative in your career and you kind of feel like, okay, this is exactly our brand message. This is exactly what the campaign that has to get approved by 50 different people. How can you be creative if you're in a bigger company, specifically with B2B? Because like, you know, Clara, you're B2B on a smaller scale, Mm -hmm. but you might not, you know, the the amount of buyers that you have might not be a true like ABM situation where you have seven different people who are signing
3: off. Right. And it's the... Being at sort of larger companies, you definitely have the slower down red tape. And, you know, it's not not bad baggage. It's fancy baggage, but it's definitely baggage. It's
0: nice baggage. It's nice baggage. It's it's Prada, you know, we got...
3: I've got a great Prada bag from working at a public company. But what it really was, especially early on in my career when we were trying to do something that's new, that's different, that's interesting, the one thing I will say is money is power. And if you were in an organization and there is a way for you to squirrel away a little bit of money, you could end up running test campaigns without having to go and ask permission and going to beg and borrow for a little bit of extra dollars. And early on in my career, I was really good at squirreling away money. And knowing where money lives, where money flows, and one of the best pieces of advice I can give to any marketer, especially at a a bigger organization, really at any organization, is understand money, where money sits in, in your company, where it goes how it works how budgets work how spend works and the times i got to do the most creative things in my career almost exclusively happened with end of quarter money so when you're at a a big public company and if you've only ever been at a private company or a startup when i say this it's like you're going to sit there going this is the dumbest thing in the world but you have a quarterly budget for the whole company and the whole department and marketing has the most discretionary dollars and they start to true up and it's really important for a public company to be predictable and hit your PE ratio. And sometimes you don't hire fast enough or sales has a gr- amazing quarter and the company has extra cash that it has to burn. What I got really good at was running your regular day-to-day campaigns that were very ROI positive so that when there would be end of quarter money, my team would be the team that got end of quarter money because we had proven track record of success and we were good stewards of that money and what it ended up turning into was that was my, okay, I'm going to take a million bucks and I'm going to do what I can to drive pipeline and revenue, but now I have money to do something creative that I wouldn't have had money for earlier and maybe I'd been squirreling away a little money the whole time that I was running something interesting because I knew money would come later. But the most important thing I did was figure out where money comes from, how it runs, and if there's end of quarter money, have those fun, interesting campaigns ready to go. And now that I've run marketing over the years, what I do in every company that I work for and anytime I have budget is allocate, I always say 20%, in reality sometimes it's 10% because you have goals to hit, but always have 10 to 20% of your budget tucked aside and it's budget in people's time for, I don't know. It is money and people that will do something creative and interesting because if you keep doing the same thing as a marketer every single day, every week, every year, it's going to work today, but the world is going to move on. And how do you make sure you have money and resources always dedicated to, I don't know, but I'm going to give it a shot.
4: Yeah, we did that at One Medical, which was a lot of fun, basically, from the very beginning of the year. We just said there's this portion of the budget for experiments. And I, Vanessa, as the marketing leader, will be happy if you spend this money to learn something and and have no revenue coming from it. Mm-hmm. That is still money well spent. Yes. And one of the things that we did to really encourage the learning element of this experimental pot of money was we sort of codified a experiment documentation and share out process. So anytime you drew money from this experimentation budget, there was a document, a memo that you would create explaining what you wanted to test and learn, Mm -hmm. how you were going to use the money, what you were going to go off and do. And then you would fill it in with the results and share it back with the team. And no matter what the results were of that spend, it was a win. Because if you learn something, great
3: job. That really helps create this level of trust and transparency in the organization of, I believe that as a marketer on the team, I have an opportunity to do something. And what you've created by doing that is this whole whole area of psychological safety. I know there's money available. I'm encouraged to think, to try to do something. And it doesn't have to be the silver bullet that makes the company you know quadruple. It is, what am I going to learn? And if it doesn't work, that's okay. And it's really important as marketing leaders for us to create that That degree of safety and trust for the people on our team is to have interesting, fun ideas that may work, may not work, but uh, if all we do is rely on ourselves it's never going to completely work. So I love that idea. Yeah, Yeah.
4: and it's a tacit reminder that we should apply the same rigor to the tactics that we already believe in. Absolutely. So it's it's an opportunity to question, when was the last time that I really looked at my traditional marketing mix and evaluated it as if I was looking at it for the first time? Mm -hmm. Maybe I should actually complete this very same evaluation process for the non-experimentation budget and see how I can not only memorialize learnings, maybe share them out with the team, maybe even broader than that, but also make some adjustments that I wouldn't have otherwise thought to make if I hadn't taken a new fresh look at it.
3: And it means you're you're not completely relying on your laurels. And marketing is changing so rapidly. The things that worked two years ago might not work today. The things that worked six months ago or the things that didn't work six months ago may end up being your top performer. And I love that idea because it's Just because you ran this experiment and it proved positive two years ago, doesn't mean that information is still true. So how do we always apply that lens of critical thinking to everything we do?
0: Yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, a lot of times marketers are, you know, responsible back to whether it's their, you know, head of sales or CRO or whoever it is or CEO. And I think that the type of things that you're talking about are really easy conversations to have with the sales organizations when, I mean, this is a bad analogy, but the idea that it's like if you show up to work every day and it's like you're super fit like you've been going to the gym you've been hitting your Pilates you've been doing like whatever it is it's like you're allowed to have the huge cheat day right nobody's gonna be nobody's gonna judge you but you know if uh, if you show up and like you look all crazy or like you haven't taken a shower in a month or something like that people are gonna be like what is wrong with this person right like if you keep your budget running lean throughout the year then when you go in and say hey we ran you know 20% of our budget was on experiments of that half of it was moonshots that could be something that you know literally makes it rain leads on you know whatever it is right and i think that that's sort of like transparency with the sales organization or with your leadership to say like hey we're thinking about being predictable Mm -hmm. and like driving predictable like lead gen but we're also thinking about moonshots and and different sort of things that could return and Every single marketer has a story of the channel that they found that was like, whoa, nobody's new to Quora ads. Nobody's new to, you know, whatever it is.
3: And I mean, that was social early on was, what is this thing? Social is never going to work for B2B. And then one day, one day it just works. It's funny. I remember this was more years ago than I care to admit. I remember talking to a company. Sometimes I get these moments of I'm old. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Thank you. So years ago, I remember talking to a company. And I think I just moved to the Bay Area. And I remember I was interviewing somewhere. And I remember where, but I'm not going to say it. And I was talking to the person who would have been my boss. And they sat there and they said, well, it's all about predictability. And how do you build a, you know, predictable results? And it was for paid acquisition. And we were going through, and how good are you at your, your predictions? And how do you know? And he's like, we really value coming in within, you know, We said we're going to do X. You really want to do X. And if you come in dramatically better, that's not actually a good thing. It's really (laughs) about the predictability. And I sat there and I went, you believe this is all science. And this was more than a decade ago. And it was all sort of paid acquisition. I was like, you believe this is all science you, in in that regards, you don't need me. You can get a machine if you think this is all science because it's going to have this predictable result. I'm going to tell you that the degree of predictability that you have is great, but I can beat that because you're missing the art part of it and the combining the, here's all the numbers and the move in pulling dials. And here's going to be the art where it's understanding the psychology of your buyer. It's understanding not, okay, these words do better, but why do these words do better? And then based on that customer insight, how do I make adjustments? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah but it's really about the predictability. And I was like, I am not a fit for this organization. Hmm. I understand it is the recession. I do not need to work here. And that
0: company's not around <laughs> anymore. I don't
3: know. They are around, but I would never be a fit for them in any way, shape, or form because... I also want to take the people on my team and say, you know what? Predictability says this is going to be your result. And every bit of machine learning says this is going to be your result. And I believe you can do better than that. And I believe you can do better than an algorithm. And I'm going to push you to do better than an algorithm. And those are the kind of companies I want to work for. Those are the kind of teams I want to lead.
0: Yeah. And so with kind of that creativity in mind, kind of the art side of marketing, Vanessa, you have a kind of thought that marketing organization as a doorway. Could you kind of expand on that and what what your thesis is here?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So my thesis
3: is that Janus, the Roman god of doorways, is the spirit animal of marketing teams. Can I just take a moment to say that There's a Roman god of doorways. Yeah, and he has
4: two faces, one on each side of his head.
0: I knew the face thing, but I didn't know the doorway thing. That's pretty good. Yeah,
4: And like beginnings and endings. And so Janice is someone that you want around during times of transition Mm -hmm. and also when you want to be prepared. And I think that all of these things apply to marketing organizations, but particularly the two-headedness or two-facedness, although that, I guess, has bad connotation. (laughs) Janice is our guy because marketing organizations are most powerful when they are both representing the outside world to the business and representing the business to the outside world. I think most people presume only one of those directions mm. is part of what a marketing organization does. Most people think that marketers are the ones who represent the company's message or their value prop or their crisis communications or whatever it may be. Pretty And they push it out there, right? Yeah. The way to multiply your impact in an organization is to not only focus on the arrow pointed outside, but also develop the arrow pointed inside. And this goes back to what we were talking about before, about really getting getting to know your audience and not only the people that you're already serving, but also the prospects and the broader market and in, industry landscape that they're a part of. It's about being able to, as a marketer, weave your way into conversations throughout the organization as the expert of the people that you're trying to reach. So that goes well beyond the the marketing discipline, if you think about how you can collaborate with a product organization to help them dial in the feature set or the new services that they want to provide, if you can think about uh, working with the customer support organization and making sure that there is a fluid flow of information about what the actual users are experiencing, how their expectations may or may not have been properly set, and how that impacts the social media buzz that now your comms person has to reckon with. There are all these ways in which making sure that marketing is positioned as this flow of information from the outside in and from the inside out. This is a way to make the marketing organization more overtly strategic. And it actually speaks to that leader that you just told a story about, Lauren, where this leader was so nervous about predictability because they were perhaps pushed into a mindset where that was all the marketing organization could provide, was predictable numbers, a certain number of dollars in, a certain number of leads out. Maybe that marketing leader got to the place where they were able to show their organization, the broader organization, Mm -hmm. their CEO, that marketing does a hell of a lot more than that. Marketing is the representative, the ambassador who looks looks after every single constituency in the mix and make sure everyone understands one another.
3: Absolutely. And one of the things that when you were talking about the marketing being the the conduit for information coming in, and I love the way you put it of, yes, marketing's job is getting the message out. But we need to be the, the representative of the customer and be really, really close with the customer. I am a firm believer of uh, owning up to your flaws. And I've had several different roles in my career, and I always- But no flaws. But no flaws. <laughs> yeah, no flaws. I've been perfect say. at all of them, every, every, every time. Everyone
0: else should acknowledge their yes. flaws, but since you don't have any I don't any, have any. Then, that's yeah. why
3: I'm good at owning up to my flaws, because yeah. they don't exist.
0: Yes, Exactly. <laughs>
3: but if they did, hypothetical situation, if I had any flaws, I always thought I was a good representative of the customer. And I met with customers all the time. I shadowed SDRs. I thought I was a good representative of the customer. One of the things I realized was every time I talked to the customer, I had an angle. And it is the, I'm talking to you because I'm going to tell you how I'm going to solve your problems. And then I realized in the last number of years that this is how a lot of marketers think. And although marketers tend to be customer facing, we tend to... Prophesize and say, this is I'm gonna solve your problems. And we don't do enough sort of looking in and getting information. I would love your take and advice to the the people listening of how do you get marketers to really become that true representative of the of the customer, of the user?
4: Yeah, you've, you've exactly zeroed in on it, which is be quiet. So I can use some specific examples. At One Medical, for example, with patient's permission, folks from the business side are allowed to shadow office visits. So I made a point to go sit in with a clinician while he was treating his patients. All the patients knew I was there, they gave permission, and just sat there silently and observe the clinical relationship between the provider and their patient over the course of several appointments. This was a really unique, powerful way to understand the different types of folks when they come into the doctor's office. What are their expectations? What do they need? What's their mental state? That was wild for me because I've only ever known what I'm like when I go into the doctor's office. Absolutely. Similarly, at Airbnb, one of the awesome perks of working at Airbnb is they give you travel credit. The expectation is that you are going to stay in Airbnb hosts' homes when you travel with your friends and family and actually figure out what it's like to be both a guest and a host. And so, I've been very lucky to go all over the world and stay with Airbnb hosts and I make a point to talk to them. I ask them about what why they started hosting or what are the things they wish Airbnb would do differently or what are some crazy stories they have from guests that have been in and out of their homes. So, really just like walking the walk and and using the service as if you were a, you know, unbiased observer.
0: Yeah. So I think one, that this is, to your Janice' point here, I think that there's two sides of of selling and marketing where you have the, that, that's really tough to, to do both is the like consultative sales approach where you're teaching things about the new world mm-hmm. that they need to know about, right? You know, whether it's, hey, the future is going to be mobile, so you know you got to get in now and you need to make sure that your you know cloud content management is going to be mobile or whatever it is mm-hmm. right so you have this kind of like teaching side but then you also have the listening side which you're which you're talking about where it's like you need to figure out like why they're buying and like why they're doing these sort of things and i think that the best marketers can figure out a way to have things where they're doing both right mm-hmm. where it's like they have the ability to listen and capture information in creative ways and using like AI and things like that. And then they're also, they also have, whether it's thought leadership or white papers or, you know, different sort of things that are, and a lot of times like evangelizing with your CEO or, or however your company does that podcast that you are like saying, Hey, this is the future that we believe in. And we're trying to kind of like, you know, level up all of our customers so that they're ready for the future. And I think that that's tough. I mean, in your career, have you seen kind of that, how have you kind of taught people that this is this is the future while listening?
4: I guess I've placed a priority on understanding who you're talking to and why you're saying what you're saying. Yeah. And that's sort of agnostic of channel or tactic or campaign. It's just like, just tell me why. Um, as a leader, I think one of the most important things we can do is just ask the question, why? In in as many opportunities as we can grab, so I think that demonstrating that I—I I certainly want to see the data. I want to understand how you know past performance dictates your new approach, but I also want you to have a human-centric explanation for anything you're doing, yeah. and if it makes sense, Godspeed. You know, I think that one of the things this goes back to sort of that spy mentality, and you know, being a reader and being curious about other worlds if you have a team of people who are humble and curious, they will get to this understanding. And as a leader, what you can help them do is connect the dots. So, oh, I see that when you started by understanding what the customers cared about, and then you ran this experiment with those special bonus dollars that were low risk, and then you got this result. Wow, we really learned something that when you talk to people, it really works. You know, So just like sort of being that omniscient narrator for yep. marketers as they're moving through the tactics day to day and help them derive the lessons out of the things that they're doing. But
0: then then you have to communicate effectively. And that's part of, you know, you have a background as a writer um, and as a performer and obviously working in publishing. So all of that to say, it's like once you have all of that information, you then have to communicate that. What are some of your tips on writing well or ways that you've seen effective communication from a marketing standpoint?
4: I think that one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of marketing campaigns at least here in the valley struggle with is this balance between being clever and being clear. So I have this idea of like finger guns which this is an audio Format, but I'm
0: she's doing finger guns. I'm doing finger
4: guns, you know, pew pew. So, <laughs> um, I think a lot of marketers fall back onto finger guns because it's fun mm-hmm. to be clever. It's it's a delight when you come up with something that's really playful or that's memorable.
3: uh It's easy work to be proud of
0: puns. Oh puns. man, so many puns! Everyone
3: loves a pun. So, and there's the piece of it that this is funny and clever, but it's funny and clever because we sit inside of this all day, every day, and. Is this inside baseball? Does this make sense to the people sitting in this company in this room at this moment? And is this going to make any sense to people outside of outside of this room? And there was a gosh, I hate picking on companies that are real and might be listening. I saw a billboard recently for a. Billboards you know, are the worst Oh my of gosh. gosh.
0: Oh, I know. But I was just uh, we. Oh, that's funny <laughs> that we all thought of yeah. the fact yeah. that it's all billboards it's, yeah, that do this
3: because you only you. And the They're reason large, why, but they only have a little bit of space for content.
0: Well, hold on. I just want to say something really quick. So the reason why is number one... It's valuable that billboards are still memorable, but we're all marketers, so we like look at them. Mm-hmm. Number one, number two is none of us remember a freaking display ad. So it's proof. It's like billboards still out there are getting their message across because yeah. you actually look at it. Display ads is like not I get, not one of us could re- recall one right now.
3: I, I like the display ads that show me things I want to buy since I have a shopping problem. Yeah, but other than that, no. That's <laughs> uh, yeah. If
0: it's a new jacket, you're like, oh, that's a cool jacket. But if it's like you know, anyways, I apologize.
3: Oh, so, and I saw one where they were taking their company name and turning it into a verb, and it's very, very clever. And I looked at that and I went, I wonder if anyone told them that the verb that they just created is actually a thing already, and there's a geopolitical thing that's happening at the moment, and this doesn't make sense if you are aware of what is happening in the world. They should not have put this up there. And then the next time I saw, you know, the update to the billboard a couple of months later, they had the same messaging, but they had a little like parentheses thing on the bottom that was, you know, but not the other one. I was like, oh, oh, you finally realized you screwed this up.
0: And you're not even going to take it down. You're you're not going to
3: take it. You were just leaning all in on this. And this is a bad idea. Well, and the driver doesn't know what
4: the thing is. No. Right? So I think the thing, the thing with finger guns is you have to earn them over time. Yeah. So I would recommend that for anyone who's working on a product or service that's coming to market. You got to be clear first. Just say what the thing is. Explain it succinctly and clearly. And you can have a warm tone. You can use diction that's accessible or engaging. You can use visuals to make something distinctive or appear particularly modern or whatever. But just say what the thing is. Exactly. And unless
3: you have the time and the money to take this clever phrase you created and just keep pushing it over time, it's not going to work. Be clear first, especially as a startup.
0: Did, was it you? I, I know it was um, in one of the conversations on the podcast that we had around, might have been Matt, that when your, when your message gets to the point where your entire team is completely sick of it, it's probably starting to hit people. That's it,
3: exactly what it is. Yeah. It's you're sitting there going, I'm so bored of this. I've seen this again and again and again. And you're like, of course you have. You work there. The average person is not seeing the same message 24 hours a day. They've probably seen it twice this year.
0: You know, so, and shout out to our friends at, at Pardot who sponsor this, but Salesforce has a great one with the number one CRM and that graph yep. of the Salesforce graph going up and to the yeah. right and crushing all the other ones. And they, they've, I mean, that They've been has doing been,
3: that since before I was there and I crazy. started almost 10 years ago. But that's so
0: great. Like, what a great ad campaign. It's like everyone can see a graph. Yep. You know, they're clear. It's in their blue. You know, that's great.
3: They know who they are, what they're doing. And Salesforce has had other messages and other campaigns. But one thing that is consistent and should continue to be consistent is they are the number one CRM. This is how this is how this works. And one thing uh, that I remember is a million years ago when I was at Salesforce when they had their CRM product and we called it CRM. And then um, I think it was John, who was the chief creative officer at the time, said, we're going to change our product names and we're going to have new product names and it's not going to be CRM and customer service software. We're not going to do that. It's going to be sales cloud and service cloud and eventually marketing cloud. And I remember sitting there going, Oh my gosh! It's going to kill me to have to do this because there's all of this traffic and acquisition from CRM and blah blah blah, and this is where our equity is. But now, everyone talks about here all of these different marketing clouds. Salesforce came up with that. That is now what Adobe and everyone else builds their marketing cloud and builds their sales cloud and builds their fill in the blank industry cloud. And Salesforce came up with that nomenclature in a discussion about how do we change product names? And it was a little bit clever, but it was also, let's not only see where the industry is going, let's take everyone there. We are so all into this. And we're going to talk about this all day, every day. We're going to put time and money behind it. And that's how you turn something from this is clever inside baseball to this is now legitimate nomenclature that more than the entire industry uses yeah, it's that's teacher. also Oh, sorry. That's also a great example of marketers
4: understanding that their audience wants something that resonates with them. So the marketing team and the support team and the sales team don't want to all use the same tool. Even if the guts of the thing are the same, Absolutely. they want to feel like they are being sold something that was built with them in mind. Yep. And so the elegance of that solution, that that product naming solution is that it's, it's making eye contact with your audience and saying, we got you. This yep. is for you
0: all i can think about is all of us doing the i mean the the scene in the office where they're doing the finger guns at each other have you ever seen it's like the toby i think it's uh no it's not definitely not toby whoever it is but yeah i can just imagine like all three of us like doing that this is bad bad radio
3: lots of pew pews
0: uh yeah did you ever see the um in the most recent star wars where, (laughs) where uh uh, what's her name oh, oh my gosh lord no it's Laura Laura Dern. Dern. yeah she so in in the latest star wars she has like her blaster out and you can in the, it's she's like shooting people with her blaster but in the filming you can see her she's saying the words pew pew <laughs> and so it's like in the actual movie it's hilarious it's amazing yeah. Yeah. so it, she's filming and like shooting people like on the set and saying that animated in the movie
3: because if you got to be in star wars and you yeah. have a blaster it would take more than every ounce of restraint not to go pew pew yeah. pew, and totally. clearly that's not just us us regular folks. It happens to award winning actors who go. This is so much fun. I've got a blaster. It's like if someone gave you a, a lightsaber. Yeah, you, you would were, make the. Zzz. Yeah, you, you couldn't not. How hard would it be to fight with that without going?
0: Zzz. Any other tips on writing well?
4: This is a very small nit to pick, but one thing that drives me nuts is when companies aren't consistent in their styling. Mm -hmm. Um, So styling is things like capitalization, punctuation, the use of bold and italics. Just marketers out there, take a look at your website, ad campaign, printed collateral. If you see places where some headlines are title case and some headlines are sentence case, is your prospect going to notice in their conscious mind Absolutely not. Only nerds like me notice that. However, does it create, in my view, a sort of sense of disarray or disorganization, is that something you want to tacitly communicate to the people you're trying to get? Probably not. It's a simple thing that can be solved with a a really basic bare bones style guide and and sort of indoctrinating all your colleagues to make sure they use it. Um, But it's one of those things that if you are tidy in your presentation of your information, in addition to having a clean message, but the way that it manifests in your materials is really consistent and clean, I think it makes a huge difference.
0: So in the military, we used to call this uh, a forcing function. But so we would have very standardized like PowerPoint slides and all this sort of stuff. And the reason is, you know, for standardization, all that stuff. But the other thing it does is it forces all of the folks who are making it to be very purposeful. And when you're doing external communications and you have a style guide and you have things like that, it forces the people who are writing the copy and creating it and pushing it out in the world to quadruple check things. And mm-hmm. that's how you catch spelling errors. That's how you catch like all sorts of stuff. So I would I would say that it, it matters for the the consumer but it also matters internally on your team so that people are checking what's going out and like there's you know I'm sure there's a uh, there's a point of diminishing returns on how many times you could edit the same piece as I'm sure you've done a million times we have definitely done a million times here at the mission but but at the same time you know people need to know that there are standards when we communicate with the external world
4: absolutely and the the sort of other side of this coin is making sure that you just write things so that they make sense. So yeah. I was at Eventbrite in the really early days uh, back when we were a 90-person company and I could stand up at my desk and see every Breitling, uh all at once, which was a joy. And so I got to make the first voice and style guide for, for Eventbrite. And one of the rules in the style guide was called the David Yerkes rule. David Yerkes was one of my professors when I was an English major nice. at Columbia. And I watched him yell at a student who had asked like a very fussy question about a grammatical rule uh, in front of everyone professor Sir Yerkes just shouted, just write it so that it makes sense. And I think I take carry this lesson with me everywhere I go, mm-hmm. that yes, we want to be correct, we want to be consistent, we want to be precise, but most important is write it so that it makes sense. And that's the, the balance that you know content creators of all kinds, whether it's words or pictures, uh, need to balance is making sure that you are demonstrating expertise in your discipline and in your craft, but at the same time prioritizing ease of consumption and ease of use of that information above all else.
0: Yeah. We use the Hemingway app. We write everything at a sixth grade level. Like all of our stuff is written at a sixth grade level. And like, there's a reason why it's like easier to consume. Even you look at like super famous writers write at a sixth grade level because it's easier to consume and and get through. Like the point is to be in the story, right? The point is to be absorbed in the content, not to be like fighting your way through diction.
3: It's exactly what it is. And it goes back in my mind to this customer first mentality of the point of content is to convey information to the customer. What are or the prospect? What do they need to hear? What do they need to understand? What you, what message are you getting across? It's not how smart do I look. It's not how can I overcomplicate all of this. It's this is what the customer wants to hear. And you know what? They will still understand it if you write at a college level. But you're going to make them work a lot harder for this. And is that really what we're trying to do as marketers? Is or make our prospects and customers work hard?
0: Yeah, there's a great line. I forget who says this, but some famous writer was like, "Uh, I apologize for writing you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write you a shorter one. Um, But like, that's the thing, right? Is like you need to be concise and to the point. Um, And a lot of times we we create like, you know, white papers or whatever it is that are long for the sake of being long, that are wordy for the sake of being wordy, like writing a paragraph when a graph will do or, or whatever it is.
3: I just finished reading this really interesting book, and it's a totally nerdy sci fi book, so I'm not going to talk about what it is. But it talks I mean, I'm here for it. (laughs) So it's a great book called Lexicon, and it's all about the power of language and, you know, for mind control, because I read nerdy books. Um, But one of the things it talks about is words aren't just a collection of sort of letters, it's how you convey meaning and narrative. And it is more about sort of the the limbic center and sort of the back of your brain that is what processes all of the, the unconscious. And it's how, words are how you convey meaning versus this, you know, collection of different letters. And then, you know, they use words to control people's minds because certain words trigger that. But a uh, good book for anyone who wants to read it. But this really makes me think of that of how do you convey more meaning in what you say rather than getting caught up in this is how we said it all
0: right let's get into some lightning round action here yes
3: i didn't know there was going to be a quiz that's that's we don't tell you those things yeah this
0: is these are all the questions you don't get ahead of time so first question what campaign that you've done are you most proud of
4: I'm going to be a total sucker and talk about what I'm doing now for my current employer. I like it. Um, So at Clara Labs, we provide a scheduling support service for recruiting teams. And there's a fair amount of really badass ML under the hood there. And when we were bringing the service to market, we had a whole bunch of choices to make when it comes to how do you explain machine learning? How do you lean into the fascination and hesitation around AI? How do you talk about an assistant that is personified? Um, there's also a lot of different takes on how to make a smart software-based assistant compelling, more human, less human, more mysterious, less mysterious. And we had to make a whole bunch of choices pretty quickly in order to bring this to market and start getting our first customers. And I'm really proud of the way that we navigated those choices. And it won't surprise you after everything we've just talked about today to, to learn that we focused on being clear and a little bit plain. So instead of making Clara sound like this Fembot from the future who was here to uh, solve all of our problems, we, we gave Clara the it pronoun. It's an it because it is. It's a service. It's, yeah. it's a service that has some software under it and it has some human intervention under it. And what's most important for us is making sure that our pos- our prospects and our customers know enough about how it works that they trust it but they don't need to know more than that. So we don't really want to geek out on like, ooh, razzle-dazzle, AI, we're in the future, come with us. Instead, we want to be like, hey, this thing works, it's fast, and it's accurate. The way we got it that way was by combining humans and machines. And I think this type of positioning helps us earn credibility as we enter the market for the first time, and it also ultimately predicts a lot about how our brand is going to show up in the future because we're not trying to obfuscate how the thing comes to market, how the thing is made. And I think that frees us up to not only talk about how we serve our customers, but also in the future to talk about our technical expertise and how we designed the service to be customer centric.
3: You've worked at a lot of really interesting startups and not startups over the years. What is your favorite founder story?
4: Oh, man. Kevin and Julie Hartz are the founders of Eventbrite, and I love and admire them deeply. And... um This is a totally self-indulgent story, but I met my husband when we both worked at Eventbrite and Kevin and Julia were our witnesses when we got married at City Hall. (laughs) So it was just the four of us and I wore like a black dress and army boots because I'm insufferable and Julia came in a beautiful white dress with flowers and she's like, I wore white because I knew you wouldn't. That's
1: hilarious. <laughs> it was
4: perfect and she was correct and she smuggled some champagne in her purse into City Hall and the four of us had some champagne in the parking lot and it was such a special moment of joy and I... And I say this because one of the great privileges of working here in the Valley at this time is that you get to work with people you admire who are many steps ahead of you and you learn from them in many realms. And so the fact that like Kevin and Julia are a couple who worked together that I admire and built this thing that was such an important part of my life, uh, it just sort of worked on many levels and it was a really great thing to share with them.
0: So my co-founders are married, so I'm right there with you. I was going to follow up that question with what was it like working with Brian?
4: You know, Brian is
0: insufferable. I mean, we can all say no, just kidding.
4: No, I mean, the truth of the matter is Brian cares so deeply about every element of the business. It's hard for me to fathom how he is one human. Like there, there are perhaps six Bryans running around and we've just never seen them all in the same room at the same time. But he is he is in it with every discipline, meeting hosts, traveling, going to all the different offices that Airbnb has around the world. So he's the real deal. I mean, he works incredibly hard. He cares deeply about the big things and the little things. And I think that his latest effort to sort of talk about how he sees building a company for the future is a really interesting example that other leaders are going to have to reckon with because he's really setting the bar. Very high.
0: And so, uh, one of my favorite things that any like founder CEO has done recently was when Brian Chesky had his like 11 star experience idea. I just think that's such a brilliant way of looking at how you can think about your customers in a way that is like, you know, if the for those of or listeners who haven't heard us talk about it, where you go through like, what's a one star experience? What's a five star experience? Like, you know, for, for an Airbnb guest and, you know, like the 11 star experience is like, you know, the Beatles are playing, you know, you get picked up in a private jet with the Beatles on there. They perform a concert. You have a, you know, hundred thousand people waiting for you, like that sort of stuff. And then it's like, when you back off that, it's like, yeah, I guess, uh, having like a boogie board there, isn't that hard, but I, I just love that. It's just such a brilliant piece of mental uh, strategy to think about you know, how you can make people happy, which is ultimately all of our jobs.
4: Yeah, one of the tools that the founders of Airbnb created early on that was really valuable for all the years that followed was this set of storyboards where they mapped out the entire host journey and the entire guest journey. And they actually had a Pixar illustrator animate the, st- the frames in the storyboard and they had them like up on the wall so that you would walk past and you could actually see frame to frame. What is the host journey from welcoming their guests to helping their guests settle in? Or what is the traveler's journey from landing and they don't have Wi-Fi and they're trying to find the address for their listing? And I think that committing to that narrative and investing in making it visible and relatable and warm and making everyone see it every day as they walk the halls of 888 brandon i think that it demonstrates exactly what you're describing that that brian is very interested in the particulars and the nuance and the vibey elements of this experience in addition to delivering a service at scale
0: this is the best lighting round, but also the worst lighting round because we are not doing fast questions. <laughs> it's I, every single time Laura and I start asking questions, then we ask like ten follow ups.
3: It is, and it's also because we have such amazing, interesting guests.
0: I know. Okay, next question: What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun?
4: Ooh, I don't use my phone for a lot of entertainment. I am very addicted to Twitter. I'm not going to lie. So I use Twitter all the time. I listen to a lot of podcasts so i have a podcast what's your favorite podcast i am a passionate devotee to pod save america and the crooked media guys just a sucker for that i'm also really into heavyweight by jonathan goldstein he is a joyful storyteller and he has a really compelling a little bit like of an odd voice so i think he's also nice to listen to
0: favorite time saving tool
4: just being tidy in the mind does that count
0: close enough (laughs)
4: Uh,
3: what is the favorite book you've read recently?
4: Oh, that's a great question. I recently read a memoir called Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood. She is a poet and she wrote this memoir about growing up in her wacky family. Her father was a Catholic priest which is not typical to have a father who's a Catholic priest, but then. Yeah, he... that's pretty rare. Yeah. And then I guess there's like a rule where if you start Catholic and then transfer to a different discipline within Christianity, you get to keep your family if you already. Or how does it? No, no, no. he was he was not Catholic. He had a family, and then he transitioned to being Catholic, but got to keep his family because why would you ever tell someone to not keep their family? And so it's just about her growing up in this series of rectories, and like her father, who's this larger than life character who has this huge electric guitar collection, and he's just like he's just like a weird dude. And she moves back home in her young adulthood with her husband because they had some financial setbacks, and she's sort of. Around her house and around her family, sort of taking notes as she goes and just sort of amassing this treasure trove of weird stories. And everyone in the household knows she's writing a book, but she kind of just tries to obfuscate that a little bit so that everyone acts as they would and put it together in, in what I think is a very, very funny memoir.
0: Favorite ad that you've seen recently?
4: I actually am pretty into the new Apple ads for the iPad Pro.
0: The one with the
3: with the pencil? Yes.
0: I don't know. Which ones are these?
3: They're, they're new because the iPad Pro, you have the pencil and you can write and then it turns your handwriting into searchable, queryable text. So it takes the whole idea and what people here can't see right now is I literally have a pen and paper because I need, to phys- I need to, the act of writing things down because when you write, you're more likely to remember, which typing doesn't give you. And the new iPad Pro lets you write without having to carry a notebook or scraps of paper. Yeah. It does other stuff too, but...
4: Totally. It just like communicates a lot very succinctly, yes. these these little digital spots, because they're they're basically trying to make a play for using the iPad Pro in place of a laptop for business context. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so already that's a little bit of a mouthful. And then they're adding on this pencil, which is a new capability. And so, I don't know. I just, I think that they're very effective in like getting a bunch out there.
3: They I think they're so good at taking a lot and visually showing and representing a very complex concept, so, so simply, and I'm the person at work that has the laptop and the notebook because I need the laptop for doing all my work stuff, but then I need the notebook to take notes in meetings. And theoretically with the iPad Pro, I just need one device. And I think that's kind of amazing.
0: We need to get Lauren sponsored by Apple. We So we did 40 year, forty lessons, 40 years at Apple ads, which was a super fun podcast to explore and record. But we pretty much bring them up every single episode, which is funny because I actually don't have an app, but I have an iPhone, so.
3: I I did just splurge and buy a new MacBook Air. You finally did. I did. I did. It's so amazing. It's so much faster than my old computer.
0: You never bring it. I know. She's got paper and pen. I have
3: paper and pen, but I will bring my fancy new MacBook Air.
0: Final question. What thing are you most excited about for the future of marketing?
3: I think this
4: is true for companies and politicians and celebrities. There is a growing interest in authenticity, not as a buzzword, not as something that is performed, but realness. Yeah. And I think that as social media requires us to be more open and available and present, with it comes an interesting opportunity for everyone to to sort of come as they are and show up honestly. And I think that as marketers, that is a really exciting creative challenge. I think that it requires us to compel our colleagues to be more trusting of the outside world. It requires us to be more declarative in who we're trying to reach and why. And I think that ultimately it has the opportunity to create loyalties to brands and to organizations that are much richer and much deeper. So I'm excited for a collective enthusiasm uh, across industries and contexts for showing up as yourself
0: i love it very much so yeah thanks so much for hanging out today this was great
3: i had a great time
0: yeah we'll uh get some authentic storytelling on the uh, very near horizon so uh thanks for hanging out
2: thanks for having me thanks for listening to this episode of marketing trends marketing trends is brought to you by salesforce pardot world-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
1: to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.